0: and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and I am here with an unbelievable guest. You guys are just going to be amazed by this man's journey. He is just just off at the top. I mean, he wrote the book, Grateful Guilt, Living in the Shadow of My Heart transplant, two-time heart transplant survivor, which I mean, the odds have to be just astronomical, and we're going to get into all of that stuff. He is a director, a producer, a director of photography, a lyricist. He's a contributing writer to Videography Magazine, the vice president of Transplant Speakers International. I, I could go on, but that's that's already too much. Uh, let's welcome Stephen Taibi to the show. Did I say that right? You did indeed. Oh, good. I always get so worried about that. You know, I check with you before we start to make sure I have it right. And then that was like five minutes ago. So uh, I I want to be respectful of you, obviously. So uh, very good. Well, how are you today? I'm great. Better than I deserve to be. Ever since you said I'm Italian, I've started moving my hands around. Have you noticed? (laughs) It's contagious. It it really is. Yeah. Uh, You know, I would say, though, that you, you deserve to be as great as you want to be and i think yes. that that's that's one of the things that we really all have the ability and the right to do i'm just really glad you're here because you've survived so much from a health perspective uh let's just start really quickly from from the beginning you were born and you went into surgery
1: right i had i had uh three surgeries the day i was born they were relatively minor but what they people didn't know that what it portended you know because um they i had um, little um, birth defects that they thought they could correct um, or or mitigate. and they didn't understand what the birth defects um symbolized. and that didn't show up until I was I was five years old.
0: Wow did were they were these pre-planned surgeries like from from ultrasounds they discovered this or was it you came out and they're like, oh, we better figure out what to do really quick and put them in surgery.
1: I don't think they had ultrasound in, 50, in 53.
0: Hmm.
1: So, um, you know, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm so old that I kicked the rock the other day and it said, Hey, Stephen." So, you know, <laughs> but, but, um, I mean, when I, when, when I was having my surgeries, I mean, compared to today, things were really rudimentary, you know, I mean, there was, in, there was an autoclave in my room for, you know, and, you know, um, so, with the, I just wasn't thriving. Was the was the way? But my grandfather got. Dialed. We wanted to check my grandfather for tuberculosis. He was living with us, so we all got X-rays, and that's how they discovered my heart problem. If um, we hadn't had that X-ray, now my mother knew there was something wrong. She was a nurse, but no doctor would listen to her. And um, if it hadn't been for that X-ray, I, you know, checking my because of my grandfather, they would have missed it. Wow
0: life is so, uh, that's one of the things I love about the almost randomness of life is that it wasn't, I mean, it's really unfortunate that no one was listening to her. I I find that that's a huge problem in our societies that we just tend to either not believe people or not want to get involved or not want to deal with anything. So we just brush it off that right off the bat. I mean, you could be dead just off of that alone.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's when, they discovered, when they discovered the problem, and my doctor called my parents and said and referred us to a, to a cardiologist who had just moved in from Houston, who my parents said they would have gone to Houston to go to this guy. Um, but he had just moved to Garden City, Long Island um, from Houston, and he was like the cat's meow at the time. And, um, and he said to my parents, uh, he, he needs surgery now. And I was, uh, you know, next thing I know, I'm in a hospital. And, you know, my whole life is like just explodes, you know, everything just explodes from, from what was normal. Right. And, um, and I went to the surgery when I was five for ASD repair, atrial septum defect. It's known as a hole in the heart. So what that is, you know, there's between the chambers, there's a wall that's called the septum and there were a hole, there was a hole in it. And so the blood wasn't working properly because there was a hole, it, it was a leak. So um, they went in there when I was five and they discovered that I had two holes. And I also had a vein that was plumb backward that was leaking into my lungs. So they had to, um, they fixed the one hole. Um, at that time, the survival rate was 50% for, for a single surgery. And they told my parents I'd have to come back. They wanted me to get a little stronger um, and I'd have to come back. And it, it turned out to be in almost a year. Uh, and um, then I had the second surgery And up to that point, no one had ever
0: lived through two for ASD repair. I was the first. Wow. That's really amazing. Did you also, because of the, you know, I would think that there was also issues with your circulation and and other parts of your body that were as a result of your heart not pumping blood properly.
1: Yeah, I was a blue baby when I was born, you know, cyanotic. Um, But I was like skinny and skinny. And, you know, I was not thriving, as they say you know i was i was a pretty weak little kid
0: you know now would you happen to know because obviously science has changed dramatically since this time if you were born today or say within the last few years is this something that would have been caught uh, much earlier or at all
1: it's a nothing burger today they they actually go in through a through a through an artery probably through the through the groin and they they go in there and they kind of looks like an umbrella for a drink. And they just, they go go in, they pop the umbrella into the hole, they sew it up and it's done.
0: Wow. (laughs) And to (laughs) think because of the, the time that you happen to be born... You had to go through so much more trauma just because we weren't that advanced yet. I, I wonder about people in the 1800s and thinking about yeah. times when the lobotomy solved every, you know, all the problems. Yes, right, right. Uh, thank, Thankfully, you didn't have that, but right. Uh, and they were done with leeches too. Thankfully. Oh, that's a. good, <laughs> Yeah, that's another one that's just not pleasant, <coughs> right? Uh, you know, there was a time when they actually were were putting people in mental institutions that loved to read books. They would say that you're reading too many books. There's something wrong with you. And and I think wow really? we have come so far. From Boy, I'd be, in a, I'd
1: be in an asylum today then.
0: Oh, I would love to read. I, I don't me have the too. time, but I I I'm a huge you know knowledge seeker for sure. Uh, so wh- how old were you when you had your first transplant?
1: Well, before my transplant, let me just tell you this: mm-hmm. my parents were told that I had I was almost going to be dead like in months the first time, mm-hmm. and they said I had maybe a year to live the second time then after i got the second surgery they said to my parents well he survived this but you'll be lucky if he gets to 10 and then and then um i got older and older and um and they said um he's not going to get to t- he's not going to get to 20 and on my 17th birthday i had a um a, a heart block incident and i had actually had surgery just before that cuz my heart was running out of control and, and they put me on a drug that I turned out to be allergic to. And, um, on my 17th birthday, um, I had a, a near fatal heart blo- heart block incident and I had the whole out of body experience, the whole thing. And that was before Kubla Raw. So all that was new to me, everything I saw, I had never heard of before. And then, um, when I survived that by this time, my doctor had already told me when I was 16, um, that I had maybe a year to live, And that's when it happened with, you know, when I was 17. Um, And then he he said to me, Stephen, I got, he goes, you beat this one, but he goes, I doubt you'll get out of your 20s. And I just started chasing life with a hammer after that. I mean, I was going to, every single day, it was going to count for me. You know? you
0: know, yeah. I mean, that's that's great because so many people, I think, would just fold under that and just be like, "Oh, this sucks," and you know, I I deserve better, and and just you know, become the opposite, uh, you know, an advocate against themselves instead of one for, you know, just soaking up every moment. Was was there? I, there has to be a psychological damaging part setting those expectations for. Well, they say it's only going to be a year, so I mean, that had to weigh on you it, in some way.
1: Well, it's how I dealt with things was that um, I was like, like when they said, "Well, you're only gonna live this long," I was kind of like, "Well, that's what you say." You know, I was, I was kind of like, I, I had all these, I developed all these strategies since the since my first, since my first month in a hospital, I developed a strategy. When I was five, which is pretty, pretty cool to develop anything when you're five, it was um really a psychological trick i played on myself and it wasn't really um an active thought i just happened to fall into it but i realized that it helped it helped me and so when i went in the second time i said what else could i do right and then by the time you know they're telling me things when i was 16 i was really actively strategizing actively planning what can i do to make what they're saying not be true and that became you know, so I ha- I was doing two things. I was doing what I called walking the 50/50 line. I was walking a tightrope where a breeze could not knock, knock me over in either direction, either to death or to life. And one of the one of my strategies, of, which I still have, am doing right now because I think we should all do this, is I still do that because you never know when a bus is going to hit you. You know, so why aren't you why aren't you living your fullest life right now? You know nobody has promised tomorrow nobody's promised the next hour for all i know a plane's going to crash into my house so mm-hmm. nobody has promised anything so i just developed i just kept developing strategies and 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 ways of thinking and i developed a technique i called bullying my heart which i was doing since i was like i don't know 10 10 or 11 and um because i would just yell at my heart and order it to go back to work and stop feeling funny and then i would do whatever I was doing that made it feel bad in the first place. Then I'd go back and do it. Um, so you know, uh, I just kept doing all those kinds of things. Like uh, I'd always wanted to be a pilot. My doctor told me I couldn't be a pilot. Um, he wouldn't sign the the uh, the, uh, the the letter saying that it was okay. And and I was really heartbroken about that. And then I, when I was on a television job, but a kid I went to college with. Well, it had the only job we ever worked together, and uh, turns out he was a glider pilot, and we were right next to the glider port where he worked, where he flew. And he told me who to go to. He said, "You don't need a, you don't need a medical for for uh, being a glider pilot. You just need a driver's license." Ah. So next thing you know, two weeks later, I was I had my first lesson, and I became um, I have a I have a pilot's license. I'm certified to fly gliders. I um and I bought a glider on the, on my 34th birthday, I bought it on my 34th birthday, which was the 17th anniversary of my almost dying at 17. Mm
0: -hmm. I was just thinking that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So that's why I did it deliberately. I actually made the date of the sale that day. Um, And then it was, you know, a little before that I told my doctor, you know, that I had become a pilot and, oh, you should see all the colors he changed. He was so angry with me. And he goes like this right into my face. It goes, Whatever you do, no acrobatics, right? So two weeks later, I'm taking acrobatic lessons. <laughs> Which you are, is just,
0: You're a little bit rock and roll, aren't you?
1: <laughs> I don't know about that. I just know that I always felt like if I gave into the idea that something could kill me, it would. So if I didn't give into the idea that it would kill me, maybe it wouldn't that I had no certainty of that, but that's that's the way I went.
0: I think that that brings up a really great point because we do tend to limit ourselves into between society or family or parents or whatever telling us, no, you can't do that. You'll never do that. Don't work on that. That's, you know, that's not for you. Between that and just the natural fears of, of the unknown of what if I fail? There's so many reasons for us not to do something, but there's only one reason for us to do it, which is why not? If right. you want it, there's no reason not to do it. And but we we psych ourselves out all the time with our bodies, with our health, with the things that we want to do. And you just you just come right over that and say, nope, I'm going to do exactly the opposite of all that. And you're still here, and you're flying a plane.
1: Right. I mean, it was it was, it was a strategy to to survive. It was this was all strategies. I I used to I had this strategy when I was in my early teens. I used to say I was going to spit death in the eye. And that's what I would do. And, and unfortunately, one of the things I did to do that I was just started smoking. I was smoking three packs a day of Tarrington 100s. Wow, that was until the first one day I realized had. how out of breath I was, and then I just quit cold turkey. But <laughs> Good for um, you. yeah, but um, that was actually part of my strategy, right? But um, it was really I, I, like I said, not all my strategies were that brilliant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. you have to have some yeah. trial and error, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That's the
1: other thing people are afraid
0: of. Everybody's afraid to take a risk. I'm
1: afraid not to take risk, right? And everybody's afraid that if they take a risk, they're gonna fail. And if you're trying something new, of course you're gonna fail. That's the way it works. And then by failing, you're gonna learn how to do it.
0: And and again, failure is one of those buzzwords that's just so negative that we we tend to, well, I can't have that on my record. I can't, you know, I I don't wanna have another failure. But if you look at it from, say, Thomas Edison's standpoint, it wasn't a failure. It was just another way not to make a light bulb. Exactly. Because it really is our mindset, our attitude that really controls all of this.
1: Yes, and mindset was one of my strategies. I, your mindset. I I, I figured it out a long time ago. Mindset is everything. Um, I'll tell you. I don't. I haven't really talked about this uh, in any interview, but. Um, When I was 17 and I had this drug reaction and my mother was a nurse and my heart rate was down in the high thirties, but right on the border. And, um, the doctor told her, do not, do not move him. If he survives the night, bring him in tomorrow. Imagine that. Imagine your mother, if you're the mother being told that, um, then I had the, the, then I had the, um, the experience. And then the next day though, I knew that I was okay because of what had happened the day before to me but they didn't know that but I was still like connected to something and I passed a, an EKG machine as they were bringing me into the room now back then this is now we're talking about the 60s um EKG machines were the size of the big um you know, uh, big ovens the big uh microwave ovens and they had a four inch CRT on them um the cathode ray tube You know where the little squiggle line would go, and I don't know what made me do it, but I said I need that machine, and and they were gonna they were hooking me up to a to a to a um, EKG, but it was going to be monitored at the central station. But I wanted the machine next to my bed, and I was really fragile. And my doctor, um, I asked the nurse, could I have that machine? I asked her repeatedly. She wouldn't let me have it. And then my doctor came in and he said, I can't let you have it. And then I said, "Either get that machine in here and teach me how to use it, or I'm going to stand up on this bed, jump up and down, and scream." Now, had I done that, I'd have killed myself. Yeah, I, I meant sure. every word of it, and he knew I meant it. Next thing you know, they're bringing in the machine, they're teaching me how to use it, and what I did was I invented biofeedback. I, there was nobody was using the fact that, and I just stared at the machine for three days, willing really my heart to make that, because they would go past three times sometimes without a beat. And up. Uh, that's how irregular my heartbeat was then. And then when it was all done, my doctor said to me, the only reason why you're alive is because of you. So, you know, so it, if you have a gut feeling about your health, uh, what I'm trying to say is, you got to run with it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right. But you also have to stay in the mindset of, okay, this is my diagnosis from one doctor. This is one doctor's opinion based on you know, what they're seeing, if it, if it seems negative, don't just jump right into that and go, well, this is how it is now. Yeah. Yeah. You, you bring up something interesting too. um, talking about when you're in the hospital, wear your own clothes. I think this is a really big thing because it again goes with that mindset of I'm not a patient in a hospital. I have control over what I'm doing. I'm just in the hospital right now.
1: Yes. And what, you know, it's really funny because the last time my last transplant was at Cedar sinai in in L.A. And um, I had a doctor, Dr. Patel, who um, came into my room and he said, you know, I wanted to do a study on patients who wear street clothes because I had the feeling and that's why I did it. And I was doing it for a while now and not just then um, that you get treated differently if you're in street clothes than you do if you're in a gown. Mm-hmm. And I just made sure I was in a button down shirt. they could they had actually easier access to me than if I was in a gown because they'd have to pull it up over right? I, I button down shirt and um, sweat bottoms. And no doctor had any problem with that, mm-hmm. but they all treated me differently than the guy in the gown yeah
0: well i mean if you think about it you know I, I was just talking to my dad about this last night you know back in the day you used to go into a bank and everybody would be wearing a suit or a dress it was very professional you felt like you were somewhere prestigious when you walked in there like you could trust yeah. these people with your money nowadays it's t-shirts sweatshirts you know uh, you know not not dressed up and it feels a lot different to me and, and so i i see exactly what you're saying
1: yeah yeah and he he said he said that, that he did want to do a study on it and and uh, I I hope he did but I, I do know that that's one of the th- one of the strategies you have to use in a hospital is
0: you have to be in street clothes it does make them look at you differently well it makes sense when you when you think about it you know um, now I want to talk to you about the book because this this is really I mean you're telling your story you've got the strategies in there how deep do you go into how how it w- was with you're meeting the family of your, your second donor.
1: Um, in this book, I don't go into it at all. Okay. Because I only go to my first heart transplant in this book because I figured that the second heart transplant would be just the same story over again. So I ended it there. I ended it at the heart attack that caused the second heart transplant. I had a heart attack because of rejection. I rejected my first heart. Um, but, um, I'll tell you about the family because I think I just, I should, um, cause I owed them so much, you know, um, my first donor, they never responded to my letters, which is their right. And, and from what I understand, only 3% of donors ever respond to
0: a letter from a recipient, only 3%. It's kind of so, tough. I mean, from their perspective, just, yeah, it's, it's them, but it's not them at the same time, you know?
1: Yeah. And, 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 and they'll, they've had enough hurt. They don't need to revisit it. I totally get it. And the fact that my first family didn't answer my letters, I'm fine with that. I did learn, I was able to learn a few things about, about him. I know that he was um he was African American. I know that he was a professional hairdresser, and I know that he was married with children. That's what I learned. That's all I could learn from him about him. And I knew his age. He was uh 36 and um with and um no 37 and I. Yeah, you know, he was, he was 36 and I was 37 on my first transplant, but on my second transplant, oddly enough, he was a professional hairdresser with children. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Except that he was, he was, um, half Hispanic, a quarter Australian and a quarter Italian. But, uh, I wrote, I wrote the letters to the family and the mother, you know, after two years wrote me back because it was just too raw for them, you well. know? Yeah. Really. So, Susan Jacobo is the mother, and she wrote me back. Her son, David Jason Jacobo, was my donor, and David's right here in my treasure in my treasure chest. And um, his father was David, Um, but um, she told me that he wasn't listed as a donor. But at the time when they asked her, she said she just knew it would be something he'd want to do, and. So she said yes. And he was one of those donors who gave the average donor, the average donor can give eight, eight donations. And he did way more than that. So he was probably a tissue donor. He probably did bone and 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 ligaments and things like that as well. But um I mean, he saved a lot of lives and improved a lot of lives,
0: you know. I bet he helped a lot of people during his life too. He just, I just feel like he was probably that kind of person.
1: Yeah. I just I have pitch, I have a picture of him with his. I have a composite picture of him with each of his four children and it's a heartbreak to me. But um, I went to LA um, and um, the mother, I I arranged to meet with the family and they had, my wife who came with me, they had literally the entire family there, they're mostly Hispanic, the husband is Hispanic, the mother is half Hispanic. And so, you know, big family, like Italians, you know, and there were probably 50 people, there cousins and aunts and uncles. And, and it was just so they were so warming. And the the, the ex wife of, of my donor said to me, you realize your family now. And, um and that's how I've been treated ever since. And, they're just incredibly lovely people. But the thing that was really touching was that um, I knew they'd want to listen to the heart. I just didn't want to have people putting their heads on my chest. I think that would have freaked me out. Right. Yeah. So, no, I really. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, Yeah, that would be weird for me. <laughs> right. So <clears throat> so my wife is a nurse and she brought her a stethoscope. So um, of all the people that were there, all the people who listened were women. None of the men would listen. The father wouldn't listen, um, which I thought is really interesting. It was an interesting sociological thing. But, um, you know, the, the mother listened, the aunt listened, the sister listened, the, the daughter listened, um, meaning the, the parents' daughter listened. And then um, David's David's daughter listened, and a couple other people listened, but mostly aunts and uncle, aunts and, and things like that and cousins and um but it was really something when the you know when the mother when the mother caught the beat when she finally she just went like this she just started going like this she started going, you know and it, I'll just never because she's right here you know right. and I'll just, yeah. I'll just never forget that the way and then the, the daughter the daughter was seven years old. And she was really conflicted about listening and she couldn't get the beat at first. And then when she did, watching her face was like watching a kaleidoscope of emotion. I mean, it just it was, it was almost heartbreaking to. But the family was just fabulous to us. And um, and we don't we're in contact now,
0: you know. Well, I think it—you know—it it, it would be enough if you got his liver or a kidney or something like that. I mean, that's pretty amazing as it is. But I think the heart of all the things that you could receive—that's probably the most precious of and the most touching of all the gifts that you could get from someone else. Just—just uh, just curious, what? I mean, I would imagine that the time from the—the the time that they remove it from the donor to putting it in the recipient that has to be a very short amount of time of the window of opportunity to get this right has got to be small ideally it's 4 hours it can stretch to 6 in some cases that's not yeah. a lot of time especially if i mean you would have to be in the same city uh, obviously to make that work
1: well it depends now if you're in new york it's hard because there's because the hell because there's no helicopters allowed in new york city um you know ever since that pan am crash there's still like neanderthals about that but um i was in la and my wife actually got a photograph of the helicopter coming in because the 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 heart had been in La, la 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 marinda i can never pronounce the name of that town uh la marinda uh and that was about over an hour away by car and they just flew it in you know and um but they were expecting it, you know. They didn't uh, when they're doing when they when they're um, receiving the gifts from a donor. And, th- and thank you for not using the word harvesting because that just drives me crazy. Yeah, uh, we're not we're not animals. <laughs> ex- yeah, exactly, or plants. Right, um, yeah. <clears throat> when they're when they're going to do a um, when they're going to receive the gifts from a donor, they bring in all the donor team. All the recipient teams come in at once. They're all there waiting, right? And um, because of the way the organs, what you were talking about, the necrotic time, that's what it's called, the necrotic time for the organs, the lungs and the heart have the least. So um, the first team goes in and takes out the heart. The second team takes out the lungs. And then they go after the the liver and the kidneys, because those can last a long time.
0: Wow. Wow. It, 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 there, you had so many miracles in your life for everything to come together the way that it has, but obviously your perspective, your attitude, your outlook has, has given those miracles every chance. You know, I think without that, you could have been gone a number of times by this point.
1: I I, I could not agree with you more. I am multi-blessed and, and Scott, you just really, it, may I expound on something that I've yeah. never talked about? Please. You just said the word miracle and i think most people don't understand what a miracle is most people think a miracle is bringing somebody back from the dead or or moving a mountain those in if you're looking at at god you know and that all the power that you're talking about of a miracle those are parlor tricks what i think a miracle is is that my doctor from probably centuries ago the right people had children who had children who had children who had children to bring her there. Same thing with my donors, same thing with every person in the operating room, every person who was a cog in the wheel that saved my life. It has to go back centuries for it all to come together at that one moment. That to me is the miracle.
0: Oh, absolutely. I, I like to think about things sometimes and think, okay, let's take the autoclave that was in your room at that time. Uh, you think about the fact that somebody had to think it up, somebody had to design it, somebody had to perfect all the little pieces. I mean, there's so many people that are involved in just making that one machine, let alone right. the the detail of an EEG machine or or all the other things that you've experienced. You know, it's it's so hard to not have a great appreciation when you take that deep look into something and think about everything that had to come together for that to be in existence for you to be able to utilize it when you needed it.
1: Yes. And, and and literally, I was born right at the right moment because I was the first, you know. And I mean, it's it, it, it really, I, I, I mean, the, the reason my book is named Grateful Guilt for a reason, you know. And Grateful Guilt is because um I used, to, when I was in Transplant Speakers International, as a vice president, that we developed a program that um, at that point, nobody was really acknowledging that recipients had survivor's guilt we were the organization that brought that forward. And I designed the program. I came up with it. My wife and I named it. And my, the president, Frank Bodino, and I massaged it and put the program together. And that was when we started to teach organ procurement organizations that there was really such a thing as uh, as uh, survivor's guilt in, in uh, transplants. And um, I think that gratitude is, you know, gratitude is the thing that you have to have every day. If you want to have a successful life and you have to be grateful in everything. Now, grateful guilt was because I was grateful, but I felt guilty. So that was the workshop that we had originally um, with transplant speakers international. But if you want, you know, like um, here's, if somebody listening or watching has somebody in the hospital or who's really sick, and they're moaning and groaning about how life is unfair, and how uh, you know, and they're just they're just you know complaining nonstop about how how awful everything is for them. Just go down a little thing with them and go. Well, wait a minute. Are you in a hospital? Are you in a modern hospital? Do you have doctors who care? Do you have modern medicine? Do you have do you have blankets? Are you being fed? Are you warmer? Are you cool? You know, depending on the season. I mean, just start going down all the things that they do you because know, there are people in countries that they don't have that stuff. And there That's you not. are. You have it. So start being grateful. And if you start being grateful, it changes your attitude and it changes your health.
0: And if not, there's still that lobotomy option that we talked <laughs> about earlier. Yes. <laughs> Well, let me ask you one more thing. If if you have, if you have another minute, I realize that we're a little over our time. So, uh, thinking about survivor's guilt, not, this is not something that I've ever experienced. So, so I'm coming to this as a complete outsider. There would be a difference between somebody who died so that you could live somebody who jumped on a grenade so that you wouldn't get the blast versus somebody who was dying and you were the recipient of something that they had that they were no longer going to use. I imagine that those types of guilt are two very different things, but probably just as traumatic.
1: That is, that is really, really an insightful question. And no one's ever asked me that. And it's that's a really good question. It doesn't matter to the survivor. To us we we're always being told they didn't die for you. We know that we know they were, you know, they were in that car accident. Somebody shot them. They fell off a ladder. We know that, but we've been sick for like a year waiting for an organ. And, and we, we think, and we're thinking about the person, you know, every one of us would have gotten in the way of that accident for that person. Cause we were already deadly sick. Right. You know? So that's where, that's where I think really where it comes from. If that answers your question.
0: It does. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what I was figuring the answer might be, but again, coming to, to this as a complete outsider, not having any experience like that. It's a curious thing. It's kind of like if your, your mother dies in childbirth, you know, the, I I know that there's a huge survivor's guilt from that because obviously they did die so that you could live, you know, it wasn't necessarily intentional. Maybe in some cases they're like, if you deliver this baby, you're not going to make it. Well, I'm going to deliver this baby anyway. I'm right. sure there's there, that happens, but yeah, I, I would imagine that that really could take a toll on somebody. Is it something that you ever get, not necessarily get over? Because I think there's always fragments of it. But is it something that at some point you can kind of accept and not feel guilty about it on the daily basis? It
1: took me about eight years. Wow, but now it's now it's manageable. Now it's you know now it's more like okay, it's it's life. You know, this is just life. You know and and the way I've mitigated it is um, I take care of the organ to the best of my abilities. I I, I I maintain a good weight. I eat well, I exercise. I do everything I can to maintain that organ because I owe it to the family
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's certainly understandable and and I, I'm glad that you have developed a relationship with them. I think that's absolutely wonderful for all of you.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um I you know, I just want to m- mention too that you know, my book is now not only on Amazon and in and in many bookstores, but I'm also now my audiobook just came out.
0: Yeah, I was and- just just about to say that actually. I'm going to have the links in the in the show notes. It's actually on a host of audiobook sites which is great. I Good. always suggest when the author reads their own book uh, I always suggest the audiobook. Uh, some people can't listen to audiobooks, and I get that. But I like to hear the inflection in your voice when I'm hearing what you're saying. I like to hear the passion and the the depth of of what you're expressing. You don't get that in print. I mean, print is great, and you can you know read here and there. But there's to me, there's really something special about an author reading their own book. Well,
1: I appreciate that, but believe me, I'm no Scott asking. <laughs>
0: I'm not sure if I am sometimes. (laughs) Well, you have a great speaking voice. I'm sure that the the book is great. I'm going to check it out myself. uh, Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Stephen, for for coming on the show, for sharing your story. It it is amazing. And I feel so grateful just to get the the chance to talk to you and and hear about this. And what a journey you've been on, my friend.
1: Well, thank you very much, Scott. And honestly, this has been one of the really best um, interviews I've had. You have asked some really good questions.
0: Well, thank you very much. That means a lot to me because I know you've done quite a number of them over the years.
1: I have, but uh, you asked some of the best
0: questions I've I've been asked. Well, thank you. We'll, We'll come back on and let's do this again sometime. I'm here. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, in the meantime, take care. Keep those positive strategies going. And thank you for sharing them with everybody else. Go check out the books, folks. It is in the links in the show notes. Uh, if you can't find them, just email me, scott at scotthaskin.com. I will help you because this is a book that, you know, if you if you have any doubts about how life should be, this is the one for you to read without a doubt. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.